This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. While skin cancer is the most common type of cancer in adults, it's rare in children. Some children, however, are more likely to get skin cancer because of factors in their health or family history. They're also quite likely to get a number of other skin conditions. Those conditions include acne, hives, psoriasis, scabies, skin infections, port wine stains, and a lot of other things that you've probably never heard of and I can't even pronounce. But the one thing that all of those conditions, whether you can pronounce them or not, have in common is that they really should be seen by and treated by a pediatric dermatologist. And in this part of today's show, we just happen to have a pediatric dermatologist as our guest who's going to be talking with us about recognizing and understanding skin cancers, even though it's way past summer, there's still a lot of sun out there, and other conditions that we should be aware of, the treatments that are available, and things that we should do and not do if you're worried about something that is appearing on your child's skin. I'm Armand Brock. We'll start talking about pediatric dermatology when positive parenting continues right after this. Support for our show today comes from Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces veterans and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or a Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you too. Federally insured by NCUA. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her Mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Dr. Adnan Mir, who is the External Marketing Committee Chair for the Society for Pediatric Dermatology. He's also an assistant professor at New York Medical College. And one of the things we really haven't ever talked about on this show is skin conditions for kids. And I think pr- pretty much every everybody who's had a newborn has had to deal with worries about what I remember my pediatrician calling uh, cradle crap stuff on the kind of a, a, I don't know, just crusty stuff on the on the scalp and then little things that look like zits and maybe a little bit of yellowish skin. Um, but how how common are pediatric concerns for dermatological concerns for kids? Well, they're pretty common. Um, you know, we there are not a lot of pediatric dermatologists in the country, but you know, every dermatologist and every pediatrician is seeing skin complaints. And in fact, I think probably one of the most common things that a general pediatrician gets, you know, your 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 child's pediatrician or your child's family doctor, one of the most common like problem-focused visits they get are based on skin things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's because you can see what's happening on the skin. And uh, if you don't know what it is, then it can be alarming, especially if it's on your newborn or, you know, or any child. Yeah. You know, I just saw, um, just saw something the other day. There was a, 
it may have been something from your organization, but there was uh, some dermatologists that were going to be dealing with a girl. Uh, they called her. She had Batman scars or something. It was some black markings on uh, her yeah. face in that looked kind of like a, a mask that Batman would wear. That I had, had never seen that before. I've seen kids with port wine stains or or moles or things like that. That what was going on with that Batman thing? She actually has what we call a congenital melanocytic nevus. Uh, congenital means you're born with it. Mm-hmm. Melanocytic means it's made out of melanocytes, which are the, the cells that make pigment. Mm-hmm. And nevus is just sort of a mark on the skin. And it's, it's actually just a really big mole uh, and sort of an unfortunately placed uh, spot on her body. Yeah. Um, you know, and so what can be done about that? Is that? birthmarks. You know, it's very difficult when, you know, I saw a picture of her and when it involves both eyelids, it's really hard to do surgery, uh, a surgery that will that will remove it completely. Um, you can, you know, most of what we can do is is surgical in nature, you know, besides surveying it to make sure it doesn't develop any skin cancer um, is, you know, send the uh, the child to a plastic surgeon to have them evaluated to see if they can have any of it removed. Um, hers, you know, would be very, very difficult to remove, which is why it was not done in the United States. Ah, uh, um, okay. Is that know, a liability issue? Then? Sort of. It's not just a liability issue. You, there's no way to there's no way to erase it. There's no laser we can use to mm. make it go away completely. It would leave scars. Yeah. Um, and it would cause you know, functional problems. So you can imagine that if you um, are removing skin from the eyelid, you have to put something back in its place. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to have an eyelid. Um, and, you know, it's not always the, the the replacement of a mole with a skin graft is not always better looking than the original issue in the first place. Hmm. Um, and so... A lot of these things we treat really conservatively um, and just have the help the family and the child manage, uh, you know, having a life with a birthmark like that. Well, that's, uh, we that's connect them be with hard. other with, mm-hmm. We connect them with families of other children that have similar birthmarks. You know, we have camps uh, like Camp Discovery where, you know, children with uh, skin problems that result in outward change that other people notice can network, you know, realize that they're not alone, that they're not weird, uh, and that they're normal and that their birthmarks and their skin conditions make them special. And so I, I would imagine that the, the first thing they looked at was whether this was something that could be burned off. Because, I mean, probably most everybody who's listening has been to a dermatologist for an annual checkup or something, and there's always little skin tags and moles and birthmarks that can be uh, liquid nitrogen away, and and that so that yeah. kind of thing is 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 it it's not on the skin it's part of the skin or how what's the difference between that uh, what you just described and uh, a, t- a typical kind of thing that you could get dealt with fairly quickly. The things that you can sort of freeze or burn or you know treat with a like an electrocautery kind of machine, those are usually made out of skin. So. For example, what you're referring to is uh, um, an actinic keratosis. That's a little precancer, you know, uh, of the skin that happens in sun-exposed areas and, and people that have had a lot of sun exposure, usually older people. Um, 
those can be treated because they are living on top of the skin. They're growing on top of the skin. Mm -hmm. The mole itself, uh, um, any mole, is growing from the skin down. Um, some of them are sort of growing along the skin. Uh, but, you know, it can be dangerous to, to damage melanocytes, those pigment-producing cells, mm -hmm. um, without, you know, without uh, completely removing them. We don't know how it changes the biology of the cells. And, you know, of all the skin cancers, of all the more, you know, the most common skin cancers, melanoma is the really scary one. And so we like to avoid doing things that will, um, that will hinder our ability to diagnose things in the future um, or that will change, you know, that will cause yeah. issues yeah. in the, the mole itself. Would you talk just a little bit about sunscreen? It's already getting to be officially fall now and we're moving towards winter, but it's still pretty warm out there in a lot of places. And I've been wondering whether people are putting on sunscreen the way that they ought to be or what has the thinking changed? Because I actually read an article and I, I think it was from a, a reasonably vetted source about how people are putting on so much sunscreen that that's leading to vitamin D deficiencies. Yeah, so sunscreen is an interesting and controversial topic. Uh, if you speak to the vast majority of dermatologists, we are all for, you know, protecting everybody from the sun because, honestly, you can get your vitamin D through other means. Um, and even a little sun exposure, the sun exposure you can get through sunscreen uh, may be enough to, you know, replenish your vitamin D stores. But, you know, a lot of people take vitamin D supplements. Now, what we do know is that long-term sun exposure over the course of your life in a person predisposed can lead to, sun, can lead to skin cancer. Um, and that sun exposure is, uh, and that uh, exposure starts during your childhood. Um, the, the risk of melanoma increases when you've had blistering sunburns when you were a child. And so, you know, our protecting, our using sunscreen and protecting our children from, from the sun is not to protect them from skin cancer now necessarily. It's to protect them from skin cancer later on in their lives. Um, and so, you know, when it's, I think it goes without saying that when you're going to the to the beach or when you're going to be in a in a sunny location for any extended period of time, wearing sunscreen is sort of a, a given because you don't want to get a sunburn. Um, but you know, even day to day, wearing sunscreen really reduces the risk of skin cancers on your face. Um, and it and it reduces the speed at which you know photo aging occurs. People that wear sunscreen, you know, from the very beginning, look younger longer. And I think uh, a lot of it's really hard to to convince you know children and teenagers that they really want to invest in their future. But mm -hmm. it's up to the parents to make sure they do. So is there a particular SPF that you recommend, or are you looking for UVA and UVB? Or are, there, are there types that people should be looking for? So broad spectrum includes UVA and UVB, and that's important. Uh, and usually SPF 30 is, enough if you're, is, is good enough if you're putting on enough and if you're reapplying every two hours or, or every time you rinse off or every time you towel off or you sweat it off. Um, for young children, we tend to suggest the mineral blockers. Those are sunscreens that include um, 
zinc oxide and titanium dioxide rather than the chemical blockers. And the way they work is by actually forming a barrier to the to solar rays right. and right. reflecting them, uh, as opposed to the chemical blockers, which absorb them and sort of inactivate them before they can hit the skin. So those barrier uh, so barrier I, ones, though, they... They're hard to absorb into the skin. You, you you look like you've got something on with those things, right? I think that's probably you, keeping some people from putting them on. Absolutely. Um, you know, there are there are tinted ones too for for people that are you know worried about the cos the cosmetics of it. Um, you know, I I tend not to worry too much about that myself, but you know, I'm a dermatologist and it's sort of <laughs> my mindset. Um, but uh, yeah, there there's a, a lot more controversy surrounding the chemical blockers right now because you know, there are recent studies that show that you do absorb some of these chemicals into your into your circulation when you wear them, oh. uh, and so we're trying to we're still we're really still trying to figure it out. You know, a lot of studies are ongoing to decide how safe they really are, and there are certain ones you don't want to wear around reefs. Uh, if uh-huh. you want to avoid those if possible because you can get coral uh, bleaching. Um, wow. All of those things are, um, you know, considerations. And that's why I really, especially for children, have people use the physical blockers, zinc and titanium. Um, they're safe, they're effective, and, uh, and you know, they, they, they don't come with as many sort of environmental effects. Talking with Dr. Adnan Mir, who's the External Marketing Committee Chair for the Society for Pediatric Dermatology and also an assistant professor at New York Medical College, and a word you probably have never heard before, a dermatopathologist. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Adnan. If you love them enough to listen to them practice the same song on tuba, please be done. Over and over and over and over and over. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're correctly buckled in the back seat. Sounds good, honey. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Adnan Mir, who's the External Marketing Committee Chair for the Society for Pediatric Dermatology. And that site, by the way, if you want to look at it, they've got all sorts of great resources. It's is pedsderm, P-E-D-S-D-E-R-M dot net. And uh, Adnan, tell us a little bit more about some of the kinds of conditions that you see and what parents ought to be looking out for so that they can not have to come to you with an emergency. Sure. You know, we, I, I would say the most common things we see as pediatric dermatologists are things that you would, you would all, you know, everybody would think of acne, eczema, uh, little growths like warts, um, other viral infections like molluscum, which is super common, molluscum contagiosum, um, and then mole checks. You know, everybody. You know, Everybody wants to make sure that when they see a new mole on their child or on themselves, they want to make sure that it's nothing to worry about. Um, and we spend a lot of time, uh, you know, talking to people about that. 
it's normal for children to develop moles. You know, you, you start developing them you know, within you know a couple of years after you're born. Uh, and, you know, there are a couple of peaks of mole acquisition, and the first one is during during early childhood. Um, and we have a, a little rule. It's, we call them the ABCDs of melanoma. Um, a is for asymmetry. We really want, you know, if you drew a line down the middle of a mole, you want to make sure that it's symmetrical on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, B is border. We like we like to see moles that have sharp borders and that aren't sort of fuzzy and, you know, like faded along one edge. Uh, C is uh, color. You know, things that are multicolored can be um, can be worrisome. D is diameter. If it's not a mole you're born with, if it's bigger than a, the sort of the, than a pencil eraser, then that's something to bring to your, your dermatologist's attention or your pediatrician's attention. And then there's an E as well, and that's evolution. Obviously, in kids, as you're as you're developing moles, they're going to be changing a little bit. But if you see any, you know, if you see it changing in any of the ways that I mentioned, those are things to to bring to one of your a doctor's attention. Um, and I mentioned, you know, that these are all acquired moles. Moles that you're born with, congenital moles, are you know, they follow a slightly different set of rules. They can be bigger. Uh, they can sometimes be multicolored. Um, but that's definitely something to bring into your pediatrician or your dermatologist. So keeping and track of thing, the things thing from I the beginning. Say, oh, go ahead. Yep. One other thing I should say is just because just because a mole, you know, you know, violates one of those rules doesn't mean it's a melanoma or that it's bad. It just means go see somebody about it and and make sure that it's not something bad. Right. Well, I guess that's the fine line I think that a lot of parents have is you don't want to go if it's not an emergency, but then you don't want to wait too long either. So that's what I was asking you about. What is it we can, as as lay people, look for to be reassured perhaps that something is not a problem and to know when to worry if something is a problem? Yeah. I mean, like I said, that's what we developed those, the, those ABCs for. Right. Um, and, you know, I should also mention, and I, you know, I mentioned this up top, skin cancer is really rare in children. And so in general, it's not good to worry about it. Sure. Are there exceptions? Yeah. I've seen skin cancer, like lots of different kinds of skin cancers in, in children. Uh, but it's rare. Um, and if you see something that is worrisome, bring it to your doctor's attention, but it's not usually going to be. Uh, a big emergency. Well, it's probably worth just putting your mind at ease, though, I would imagine, to, to get things checked out. Uh, Absolutely. Take pictures. Um, you know, if you know that it's not going to be another until another two months before you get to see a pediatric dermatologist, take a picture now and then take a picture in a month, and then the, the dermatologist will have something to compare it to. Um, right. Like I said, change is something that's... Uh, um, that can be worrisome, and so we like to see um, how the thing is evolving. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of taking pictures, I'm wondering how has has telemedicine affected your practice? Because I know that there are so many people who are having their so many doctors who are having their patients take a picture of something. If you've got a cut, or you've got a bruise, or or you've got a mole that seems to be developing strangely, or or, or is is causing you some worry that people are, are texting these things or emailing them to their providers. 
Is that something that, that you do with your patients? Um, we do. And part of the reason we do this is that, like I said, our wait is very long. There are not a lot of pediatric dermatologists. And it helps us triage. Um, if I see something that's worrisome in a picture, then I'll get them in sooner. Uh, if I can reassure somebody by photograph, then then I will. And if I don't know, then you know I'll ask them to to uh, come in and see me. Um, I know. I mean, I get pictures all day from family and friends, also. And you know, it's, again, it's a lot of triage. It's and it's you know, go see your doctor, or don't worry about that, or I don't know, just you know, you're gonna have to see somebody in person. Um, yeah, there are. I, it's important to know that there are limits to what telemedicine and what and what you know photography can can tell me. I need to sometimes I need to be able to feel something to know uh, what it is, or I, you know I need to really be able to see the color well, or uh, you know see it in particular kind of lighting, or use a or use a, a, a tool called a dermatoscope, which is sort of a, a magnifying glass that. Can be used with a polarized light, so you know it's not a it's not a an, an end all solution, but it's certainly a, an excellent uh, adjunct to, to our arsenal. Hmm. Are there things, computer programs or apps that can scan photographs in a a I don't want to say more accurate, but a, a higher resolution way than than you can? Because I know, for example, that there. So I, I was at a conference and they were talking about a new type of of uh, stethoscope that records heart sounds and compares them with thousands and thousands of recordings. And, and that stethoscope has been able to identify abnormalities that a, a even a cardiologist might not have recognized. Yeah, I I think these things are coming. Um, there's a lot of sort of variation in background from skin type to skin type and from, you know, with different ethnic backgrounds. And so, you know, it, it will take a long time before anything like that is really ready for, for, the, for the real world. Yeah. But yeah. there are certainly people working on, on artificial intelligence sort of, uh, dermatologic applications. Yeah, I mean, I'm just imagining if I were in your shoes, if I were a pediatric dermatologist or a pediatrician of any kind, that I'd be worried about the the false positives and false negatives. But I guess you can have a false positive and false negative based on an in-person exam, too. Absolutely. And, you know, like like everything else, it's a tool that that should be used with caution if you do find something like that. Don't don't take what it says, you know, if, if you do find an app that, you know, says it can detect skin cancer, you know, with X amount of accuracy. Don't take it at its word. You know, you should still go see somebody to reassure yourself. Talking with Adnan, anyway. uh, Adnan Mir has been my guest. He's the External Marketing Committee Chair for the Society for Pediatric Dermatology, which, again, that website was pedsderm.net. He's also an assistant professor at New York Medical College and a dermatopathologist. Dr. Amir, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. Three, two, one. Oh, no. Which button am I? Oh. When every second counts, 
you can't wing it. Uh, guys, a little help up here? In a home fire, you may have less than two minutes to get out. So make a family home fire escape plan. Then practice home fire drills at least twice a year so everyone knows what to do when they hear... Prepare your family at ready.gov slash fire drill. Brought to you by FEMA, the Ag Council, and Make Safe Happen. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, I have two kids, ages 6 and 7, and I'm completely crazy about them. On one hand, I'm confident that we have a good relationship. On the other, I worry that I'm a bad dad. One of the things I hate about myself is that I can't seem to connect with the kids during play, and I have a really hard time making myself play with them. That doesn't seem like something a good parent would have any trouble with at all. Is there something wrong with me? Okay, first off, there's nothing wrong with you. The fact that you're worried about this aspect of your personality says you're not a bad parent at all. Many of us were raised to believe that good parents play with their kids, and they do. However, the reverse, that parents who don't get down and dirty with the little ones are bad parents, is simply not true. Chances are excellent that you're struggling with playtime not because you hate your children. Again, the fact that you're worried about it takes that option off the table, at least in my view. But because spontaneous or casual play simply may not be part of your personality. And you're far from alone. One recent study found that one in six parents has trouble connecting with their kids through play. And six in ten say they play with their kids only occasionally. Some of these parents were type A personality types, you know, the kind of people who after five minutes of play start thinking about all the projects that need to be done around the house or the report that's due at work next week. These are the kind of people who constantly feel the need to move forward make progress, mark items off their to-do lists. Unfortunately, that often results in having less fun. Others said they just don't have enough time for play. This was most common for dads. Most of us live hectic, fast-paced lives, and being bogged down with money worries or being overworked at the day job doesn't lend itself to relaxed, stress-free play with the kids. But whatever the reason, almost all felt guilty about not playing enough. If you're not in either the type A or the not-enough-time camps, you might be one of those people who's simply forgotten how to play. Don't laugh. This has become such a big problem that some child care centers have started offering play classes for parents. Really. Not being sure what to do can definitely make playing a little or a lot more challenging. But don't worry. We all have the capacity for it. Here are a few ideas that may help you reconnect with your inner child. Channel your inner Mr. Rogers. The second you come home from work, go change clothes. Getting out of that suit and into some old jeans and a t-shirt can put you in a completely different mindset. Break out the clay and paint. Make a mess in the kitchen. Bang on some pots and pans. Get creative, and you'll be surprised at just how much fun you and your kids can have. Stop being so tough on yourself. Play is all about letting go of boundaries and structure. The more you worry that you're not doing something right, the more trouble you'll have relaxing. That said, sometimes having a little structure can help you ease into the whole play thing. Start with games that can be started and completed within a short time, say 15 to 20 minutes. A lot of game manufacturers now list playing time information right on the box. Card games, board games, and puzzles are especially good candidates. 
If you've got a comment or a suggestion or a topic you think we ought to be handling here at Positive Parenting, please do send us a line. You can do that through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. But don't go quite yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brandt, the founder of MrDad.com. Thank you so much for staying with us. We've got a great rest of the show coming up. There are two common and dangerous misconceptions about psychological trauma. The first is that trauma, the word is Greek and means injury, comes only to some of us, combatants or civilians in a war, victims of natural disasters, survivors of rape and incest, or children maybe who've grown up in the most callous and sordid families. The second is that trauma is an unmitigated disaster, causing permanent emotional crippling, requiring never-ending treatment, and severely limiting the lives of those who've experienced it. In fact, trauma comes sooner or later to all of us. In a recent government survey, 60% of U.S. adults said that as children they had experienced significant abuse and or neglect. Having a life-threatening illness, a long-term disability, or chronic pain is traumatic, so is caring for someone with those conditions. The loss of a loving relationship is deeply traumatizing. So is the loss of a job that gave our lives meaning and purpose. And all of us, if we live long enough, will have to contend with the trauma of losing loved ones. That's the bad news. And the good news, which we're going to be talking about in this part of today's show, is that all of us can use tools of self-awareness and self-care to heal our trauma and, indeed, to become healthier and more whole than we've ever been before. And we'll jump in when Positive Parenting continues right after this. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wounds? 911, what's your emergency? Please help. My son shot his brother. 911, what is your emergency? 911, please state your emergency. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. 
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is James Gordon, who's the author of The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. Jim, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here with you. Can you give us a little bit of an overview? I think when people hear the word trauma, they think they know what it means, and you have a, a, a different definition, and you talk about how trauma is not always a bad thing, and it's not always what we think it is. Why don't you tell us what it is in your view? Yeah, well, trauma is a Greek word, and it means injury. And it's injury to the body, to the mind, to the spirit. And I think one of the things that's important to know is that trauma comes to all of us. If it doesn't come early in life, because we're living in a difficult family or there's been discrimination or we don't have enough money in our family, it's going to come later as we deal with issues, difficult issues in relationships and losses there and perhaps with physical illness and disappointments. And if not early or in midlife, it's going to come to all of us as we grow older and have to deal with physical frailty and loss of people we love and our own death. So trauma is a part of life. It's not apart from life. That's the first thing that's most important. And the second is the trauma is the, the school in which we learn wisdom. And this is a very ancient notion that, uh, you know, that's there in all of the major spiritual traditions. It's there among aboriginal people. And we're beginning to rediscover it, that trauma is, I'm not saying you welcome it, but when it comes we have the choice of whether we're going to go through it, experience it fully, and potentially learn from it, or try to pretend it's not happening and push it down and push it away. Mm -hmm. And that latter way is not a good way to go. That's the way to perpetuate the trauma right. and create all kinds of physical and emotional problems. Would you say that trauma is in the eye of the, the beholder kind of a thing, that, that there's no absolute way of, of discussing it? Because it seems like what is traumatic to one person may just be nothing to somebody else. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful way to look at it because I think what happens is people, you know, I work a lot both in war zones and post-war and post-disaster situations of various kinds, and people who have suffered often feel I don't have a right. Somebody else has suffered more than I. How, how can my suffering be important? Why should I even pay attention to it? And I think what you're suggesting and what I've learned over the years is we, we need to pay attention to what is traumatic to us. What is the injury that we're suffering? It's ours, and, that, and it doesn't make any sense, and it's quite unhelpful to compare it with somebody else's. We need to become aware of what's traumatized us, what's thrown us off, what's made us anxious or angry or depressed or withdrawn. We need to pay attention to it and begin to address it. Do you think that it's fair? I mean, as, as you're saying this, I'm wondering, there, there's so much talk these days about trigger warnings and safe spaces and things like that in universities in particular. And and there are some people who are reacting to that by saying, by talking about snowflakes and the kids who are are triggered or are too fragile. Is there a place for saying to somebody, you, just, you need to toughen up a little bit because these are things that are going to happen in everyday life? 
that's, that's great. I, you know, I think it really there's a there's a middle ground. I mean, you don't want to intentionally offend people. That doesn't that doesn't make any sense. That's just what we used to call rude. But life is filled with things that are going to upset us, and we right. all need to learn how to relax with those things and how to learn from them. And I think that that there is, you know, we've, we've kind of gone in one direction from being utterly insensitive to people's, you know, personal sensibilities because of gender or race or ethnicity right. or age to becoming much too sensitive so that we're worried about things that actually magnify the difficulty and don't help people move through. And I, I don't know if it's a question of toughening so much I look at it, and the way our method works, it's more a question of relaxing with it, understanding that these things are going to happen, that sometimes people are going to say things that are offensive, that do trigger you, and how do you deal with it? How do you learn from it? How do you move through it? And how do you become able to uh, be larger than those insults or triggers? Yeah, I mean, you, you hear every once in a while that you know somebody says, "Well, you you made me feel bad," and then the response can be, "Well, nobody can actually make you feel anything. It's up to you how you feel." It, it sounds it sounds like you're you're talking a little bit about that 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 some well, of this is but, is but the I processing say, of if it. If somebody says I make them feel bad, I say, "How? What's going on? What have I done? I want to find out." I mean, we're talking about interactions. Right. What, what have I done? Tell me. And that, I think, is helpful for both parties rather than going you know, one way or the other saying it's all your responsibility or it's all my responsibility. We're, we're in relationships with human beings. And mm-hmm. if somebody makes us feel if somebody makes me feel bad, um, I'd like to tell them and I'd like to tell them why. And I'd like to hear what their response is. I think this is really about building relationships rather than having a particular uh, a judgment on what's happening or telling people this is the way you have to behave or have to think about it. Right. Let's talk a little bit about what happens to a person who has undergone trauma of some kind. Is there a particular measurable physiological response that you can you can do a blood test and say somebody who's experienced trauma or we, we, we've talked on the show about adverse uh, interactions that have over time is that affect people when they grow older but how does how does trauma affect us well I, there there are two general ways that the trauma affects us one is it provokes what's known as the fight or flight response which is a biological response that's built into all vertebrates up and down the uh, evolutionary chain and when you're threatened by a predator you get ready either to fight or to get out of there, get away and escape. And in either case, blood pressure goes up, heart rate goes up, big muscles get tense, digestion doesn't work particularly well, centers of the brain responsible for fear and anger are activated, and there's decreased activity in parts of the brain and the frontal cortex that are responsible for judgment and self-awareness and compassion. That's one reaction, and we can feel it. We've all had experienced fight or flight many times. And the problem is not we experience it in the moment because it can be life-saving if we're really threatened. The problem comes if we continue with that pattern and we stay anxious. We stay 
easily agitated. We have difficulty concentrating and focusing, which is what often happens to people after they've been traumatized. And there's no, uh, you know, some people may, if you, you, you might see some elevation in stress hormones, but you don't need to do blood tests to know that you're in that state. You just need to pay attention to how you're feeling. Now, the other reaction that happens to people, especially when they're severely traumatized, is known as the fear reaction or the freeze, I'm sorry, the freeze reaction. And that's when the trauma is so overwhelming and you can't fight and you can't get away and you can't do anything. And we go into a state of kind of physiological and emotional collapse. The fight or flight response is mediated by the sympathetic part of the autonomic nervous system. Freeze response is mediated by the oldest part of the parasympathetic nervous system. It's the deer in the headlights. It's the, um, I don't know if you have a, a cat, but if you've ever seen your cat catch a mouse and grab it in its jaws, the mouse will just go kind of limp. And that's the freeze response. And it can be life-saving for the mouse because the cat shake it around the mouse and her jaws and she gets bored often. If she doesn't crunch the mouse to death, she puts the mouse down, mousey shakes herself off and runs off to the mouse hole. Freeze response has come, done its job, and gone. But with humans who've had a freeze response, for example, when we've been you know, assaulted in a way that we by in a way that we can't do anything about or we've been raped or we're in a war zone and can't escape and can't fight and get out and we go into that freeze response shut down emotionally and shut down physically again it 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 feels like it preserves us and often it does it keeps us from some of the worst psychological damage but if that continues we tend to withdraw from other people Mm. to be uh have our emotions inaccessible to us, and it becomes a real problem for as long as it continues. So those are the two basic responses okay. that, that we experience. I'm talking with James Gordon, who's the author of The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will keep talking to Jim Gordon about the transformation, what it is, and uh, how it can help you, possibly. I'm Armin Brat. You're listening to Positive Parenting. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Bada. If you're just joining us, talking with James Gordon, the author of The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. So tell us a little bit about the method that you've, that you've developed and what it's about and how it's being implemented and just a, a little bit of the, the, the history of it. Sure. Well, I, I'm a psychiatrist by training. And I've always been interested from the beginning, really, from the time I was in medical school, I've always been interested in how people can understand and help themselves. And that's really a, a sort of fundamental uh, idea, a kind of shaping principle of psychological work with humans. And as I've, as I've watched, uh, I've learned over the years that there are a variety of ways that all of us, myself included, that we can understand what's going on with ourselves and a whole panoply of techniques that we can use to balance out our physiology, balance our psychology, open up our imagination, make it easier to connect with other people. And that when you use these techniques, you can reverse the damage that trauma has done and you can make discoveries about yourself that can actually help you renew your life. So I began to develop this work many, many years ago uh, when I was working on the psychiatric ward and then later as I was a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health and I was working uh, with runaway and homeless kids on the streets and then running a national program. And what I saw is that even these kids who were you know, kind of bewildered and didn't know where to go or what to do and Many of them were being put in psychiatric hospitals or in, in jails, and where they really didn't belong, they were just kind of confused kids trying to find their way and not being able to do it easily at home. I began to see that these kids could also use their minds much more effectively than anyone had ever thought. And so the, the work with them was helping them to understand their situation, helping them to make more thoughtful decisions, respecting their capacity to help themselves. So that was basic understanding that I had. Yeah. Meanwhile, and this is the early 70s, I myself was learning techniques to deal with my own stress, my own anxiety, my own uh, limitations, learning to do different kinds of meditation and yoga and mm -hmm. tai chi and qigong and learning how to use diet to balance out my body and become more healthy. And over time, I began to put together many, many of these self-care techniques in a comprehensive method, which is what I describe in the transformation. And it's a method we've been using at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine now for almost 30 years, training many thousands of uh, doctors, nurses, mental health professionals, teachers, community organizers, and peer counselors, mm -hmm. who in turn have worked with hundreds of thousands of people here in the U.S. and around the world. So it's wow. a comprehensive program yeah. of self-care. Well, let, let's start with just a, a person who has had some kind of trauma. And I, I can't even come up with a decent example uh, because there, there are so many possibilities. But just somebody who's had some kind of a trauma, how do you begin to help this person to start healing? Well, the, the first thing that I do, that I do in person, and hopefully it comes across well in the transformation, is I say, 
you can do something about what's happened to you. And I give many examples in the transformation of people who have been seriously traumatized, who have been able to move through the trauma. I give lots of research evidence. So I, I say to people, it is possible for change to happen. Because one of the worst things about being traumatized is you feel like it's never going to change and there's nothing I can do. So that's number one. Next, I teach a very simple meditation technique, slow, deep, soft belly breathing, breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth, and our listeners can do it as they're listening, with your belly soft and relaxed, perhaps saying to yourself, soft as you breathe in and belly as you breathe out. And if thoughts come, letting them come and letting them go. So if you do this for five or ten minutes, you tend to feel a little bit more relaxed, a little calmer. Maybe shoulders that were tense get a little looser. And there are specific benefits, but there's also the message, what, what technically you would call it a meta-message, a message about the message. So the message is, I can feel calmer. The meta-message is, I can do something to help myself. This is a mm. crucial beginning. Yeah. And then from there, we go on with the other techniques. And most people, you know, 70, 80 percent of people, the first time or the second time they do this, they experience their ability to put themselves into balance. And if you can begin with this slow, deep, soft belly breathing, and if you can put yourself into balance or better balance physiologically and psychologically, then it opens the door to using all these other techniques of self-care. Now, I'm curious, you mentioned something a while at the very beginning of our conversation about people who may feel that their particular trauma doesn't measure up to somebody else's. And I'm wondering how that kind of attitude fits into somebody's ability to overcome. I just was thinking of a friend who was just in a situation, she's a very, a, a very strong, a very competent woman, and does not want to see herself as a victim, but she was trapped in a room with someone who was yelling at her and could not get out of the room. And she yeah. found that very, she was able to get out. She wasn't physically hurt, but it was extremely uncomfortable, and she, was, she felt very threatened. And, and, and I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, for somebody like that who, who says, I don't want to see myself as a victim. I don't like seeing myself as a victim. But in reality she was a victim of, of a type of assault, I think. Um, and, and she, for a couple of days, had just ruminating on the thing and constantly going over it and over it in her head, and which I imagine a lot of people with various types of traumas do. They just keep going over it, and I should have done this, and I could have done that. And how do you get somebody to even, before they can start with meditation or belly breathing, they have to understand that, that maybe to free themselves up and forgive themselves in a way. Well, you know, that that may come after using the techniques because oh, okay. you have to break that pattern of criticizing and condemning yourself. And the, the soft belly breathing may not be a, the best way. It may work for some people. For other people, we do active techniques like shaking the body, moving the body, shaking the body fast, getting rid of that tension, because that tension has gone into her body. Mm -hmm. It's not just her mind that's repeating it. I would bet you a nickel 
that her body is tight and tense as well, and she's having trouble relaxing. So do something active physically to let it go. And, you know, it's, I think that if she can, the, the other thing is it's very helpful for all of us to recognize that this is something that is traumatic. That, and blame is not the issue. The issue is it happened, and here's what's going on with you. And this is really, of course, the lesson of meditation is this is it. This is reality. This is what's happening to you. If you can accept it, then you can move through it. If you're still, if you keep on saying this shouldn't be happening, mm-hmm. you're not actually admitting what's going on. Right. No, so, so that, that's a great point is it that it is, and you can keep trying to tell yourself it's not, and that's not, <laughs> not going to help you much. Yeah, you know, and this is really important. This is a very important point you're bringing up because this is what has crippled so many veterans, for example, you know, over the years and from all the wars that that, uh, that people have been in, is this sense this shouldn't be happening. I'm supposed to be tough. I'm supposed to be strong, but it is happening. And if she were able, if I, you know, if I were talking with her, I might get her. I'm sitting in a room with her. I might get have us both stand up and. Put our, you know, have our feet firmly on the ground and shake for three or four or five minutes and just let it out. And my experience has been that a lot of people, the emotions, maybe the tears will start coming or the anger will start coming and then change can happen. So you really often, this is the point I make repeatedly in the transformation because really important, you need to work with the body because you're not going to argue her out of it. Right. You know, it's there in her mind and it's repeating itself. Yeah. But having the experience of allowing the feelings to come up, those feelings, whatever they are, of shame or anger or fear, that can be the beginning of the healing process. And that's what you want to encourage. James Gordon, the author of The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. Jim, thanks so much. This is really, really thought-provoking and, and wonderful. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Before we go, a special thanks to the folks at Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They've been proudly serving the armed forces, veterans, and their families for over 80 years. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.